0: How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Uh okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to
1: the two-man power trip of wrestling.
2: Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my
1: homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. You hear me, fear me.
2: This is the two man power trip of wrestling brought to you today, empowered by Meow Box. Meow Box is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And stay tuned a little bit later on for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, primetime John Paz. And John, today we're honored to have on our show legendary Memphis wrestling promoter and absolute visionary in the world of professional wrestling. That is Jerry Jarrett. Jerry Jarrett took the time to spend with us, which was a uh, very phenomenal chat that you had, actually. Uh, I'm not going to take credit for the whole thing. I was listening to the tail end of it because we had some uh, some commitments going on that day, but... Um Jerry Jarrett, and you spoke for quite a long time about all aspects of his career, all aspects of his business, and a lot of the things that he managed to accomplish in the professional wrestling industry. And when you say the name Jarrett, and you know, right now we know uh, the modern day fan will be very familiar with his son, Jeff. Who, of course, you know, he was a big part of the WWE's Attitude Era. He was a big part of the uh, new generation. Of course, he made his name in Memphis. And then, of course, him and his father went on to form TNA. And now Jeff is going on to create some uh, pretty cool things with Global Force Wrestling. But what does the Jarrett name mean exactly to the world of professional wrestling at the end of the day?
0: It was a complete and total honor to be speaking with such a huge, huge legend in this business like Jerry Jarrett. I mean, I can't underst- – uh, I almost understated it a little bit. I can't uh, state it enough how much of a legend I think that Jerry Jarrett is in the business. And it goes without saying that the Jarrett family name is just synonymous with the wrestling business. It goes down there with uh, you know, the Hearts and the Funks and all the other great – and the Rhodes and all the other great names – In the wrestling business, I feel like the Jarrett name and the lineage of the Jarrett name is such a huge, huge name in the business. And you think about Jerry Jarrett, and then you think about his son, I mean, uh, obviously Jeff Jarrett. You just think about the lineage and the legendary name that the Jarrett name really truly is, and I think that the Jarrett name truly, truly means a lot to the wrestling business. I mean, Jerry was a promoter, a wrestler. I mean, Booker, he did it all, and he played such a huge, huge part in not only Memphis, but behind the scenes in the WWF, and he also played a role behind the scenes in WCW. So uh, Jerry Jarrett, no doubt about it, means a lot to the wrestling business, and it goes without saying that the Jarrett name, the Jarrett wrestling name, meant a lot to the wrestling business as well.
2: Now, one of the phrases used... When we talk about uh, a retread or we talk about something that's been done before is often imitated but never duplicated. And that is definitely something that you can pinpoint right to the Memphis territory. And I guess you would say what Jerry Jarrett's role was in the Memphis territory and the credit he deserves for being such a a visionary and such a creator while uh, controlling that Memphis territory.
0: Oh, no doubt about it. When you talk about Memphis wrestling and the huge, unique history of Memphis wrestling and how huge Memphis wrestling is, I mean, you go back and look at Jerry Lawler and all his amazing feuds. And then you see, you can go back further. I mean, you got Sputnik Monroe, Jackie Fargo, all these legendary, legendary names. And if you really think about it, Jerry Lawler would probably be the biggest name in the history of Memphis, but there is no Jerry Lawler without Jerry Jarrett. And Jerry Jarrett played such an integral part in not only bringing in Jerry Lawler, but played an integral role in booking in that territory, booking the area, bringing in the talent, bringing in the guys. I mean, anybody who is anybody in the wrestling business went through Memphis, and you went through that territory, and you had an awesome feud, and you just, I mean, they, Memphis was it. I mean, you go back and look at wrestling history i mean obviously the nwa was great and you got w um, wwf at the time was going great but you really look at it and memphis was that territory it's almost like how people look so fondly on ecw and say oh you had wcw and WF, but ecw you go back and you look in the wwf and nwa at the time you're like man memphis was amazing i love going back and watching my old memphis stuff I, I love watching all the, the great Lawler feuds. I mean, look at the guys who came in. He had the Hogan's, the Macho Man's, Jesse Ventura, Bam Bam Bigelow, Terry Funk. Austin Idol obviously was there, but uh, all these awesome guys are in that territory. And it comes down to one thing. It was basically, basically the mastermind of Jerry Jarrett, who's one of the smartest men ever ever in the history of the business he's such a smart businessman he's such a good booker and as i talked to him in the interview he said that that's the part he loved the most he loved promoting and he loved booking and he loved writing the stuff more so than wrestling so it was him and Jerry Lawler were like the perfect duo together just unbelievable the spark they created in Memphis and obviously if you look at it so many people stole the style I mean ECW is a blatant ripoff of the Memphis style big time I mean you want to say hardcore well Memphis was hardcore for hardcore was cool and obviously if you know anything about the business you know that Paul Heyman went to Memphis and got a lot of his ideas from there so obviously it's a bigger impact than you actually even thought can conceive because you know Heyman pretends that uh wb stole the uh the, the attitude era from ecw which is uh, complete and utter bullshit well Heyman stole most of his ideas and stuff from memphis so it's just funny looking back it's like okay well then you know the attitude era was spawned partly to do with memphis and partly to do with jerry jarrett and uh, i'm gonna get more into the wbf after. Chad gets a little bit more into the WWF and Jerry Jarrett, but the USWA, which was a huge part of Memphis as well, uh, was almost a basically a feeder league for the WWF. So, I mean, Jerry Jarrett, more than you really think about it, he doesn't get the credit he deserves, and he should probably get more credit, but he doesn't for whatever strange, strange reason. He's almost... Um, forgotten about how much he actually contributed to the business and how important he really was. I feel like he uh, deserves a ton more credit because he's an absolute legend. He's an absolute uh, icon. It was an absolute honor to interview him. And uh, I just loved talking to Jerry about the old Memphis days because, boy, they bring back some great, great memories.
2: You know, and as I said before, this is actually just uh, you and Jerry having this talk because uh, we all had some scheduling uh, conflicts that day, which was funny because Jerry's on his Bluetooth and it's, uh, it's a little uh, in and out every, uh, every so often, so uh, we definitely urge you to stay with it. But the one thing that I was just on the edge of my seat waiting to hear was his perspective on helping Vince McMahon in the mid-90s and the actual conversations that he was talking about that they had in him coming to the WWF and that Vince really did value uh, Jerry Jarrett's opinion and d- definitely valued his, you know, ass- assertion into the WWF's, per, you know, creative and uh, basically running of things while Vince was on trial in the fight of his life uh, in the mid 90s. So, you know, what were you, what's your take on what Jerry had to say about helping out Vince in the mid 90s and uh, kind of the meeting of the minds because you didn't see somebody uh, like Jerry Jarrett you know, fitting into that WWF world, you know, only a few years down the road, but it was something that I was definitely wanting to hear him address because it's uh, one of my favorite eras in the business is just that story of Jerry Jarrett working behind the scenes with Vince, well, for Vince in the mid-90s. Yeah,
0: you know what's crazy? And, and, you know, I I touched on a little bit. Obviously, you touched on it a bit, Chad. The perspective of him helping out Vince uh, in the WWF, if you think about it, the USWA was a feeder league for the you know WWF for a while there, and obviously um, Vince and Jerry Jarrett go back a ways, and you'll hear some great, great stuff from Jerry about his history with Vince, which is a lot more than you think. Yeah, I had no idea about their relationship, you know, behind the scenes and how much that they talked and how much that Vince looked up to Jerry and, and got some ideas from Jerry. And obviously, you know, he knew that what a great mind Jerry was for the business and that he needed to get – you know some insight from him and some opinions and stuff so it was great to hear that part of it because i mean you're gonna absolutely love that stuff because you didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes especially if you fast forward a little bit towards a steroid trial where supposedly vince mcmahon is going to be going to jail and basically you're leaving the wwf without a leader and obviously vince you know he's the head on show he's the boss he's the ceo he's the man and you're going to basically leave the WBF without that and you got all these uh, other guys that you know are great in their perspective roles but nobody to lead them no didn't have a true leader so that's where Jerry Jarrett came in and Jerry Jarrett was being groomed to replace Vince during the steroid trial you know if Vince ended up going to jail so I mean obviously Jerry played even more of an integral role especially in the WWF than anybody really truly realizes and that Vince had so much trust and faith in him that he would be able to be the only guy to run the company if he was gone I mean that's saying a whole hell of a lot because obviously the WWF and wwe number one game in town and um without vince it's crazy to think of where they would be and what they would be doing but vince was thinking to himself well jerry Jarrett can run it and that's quite a compliment and quite an honor to be able to say you know like i you know i, I pretty much was going to run the wf if vince went to jail so i feel like that's another part of uh Jerry Jarrett's great, great wrestling history, besides the great Memphis stuff, that people, you know, possibly uh, forget a bit or, or maybe didn't even know.
2: And if that's why it's time to sit under the learning tree, listen to Jerry Jarrett, listen to some of these amazing stories about the people he's come across in all his years in the wrestling business. Listen to the stories about his book. Listen to the stories about Andre the Giant. It's just a fantastic companion to some of our other episodes that we've had from the Memphis territory, including actually the co-author of Jerry's book, and that's Mark James. Go back and listen to that. And then countless other Memphis superstars that we've had on during our run here on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And John, before I turn it over to you for some two-man power trip of wrestling business, we want to let everyone know today's episode is brought to you by Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And when you head over to Meowbox.com and you make your, your first ever box purchase subscription commitment, you're going to use the code powertrip10, that's powertrip10 in all capital letters, and you're going to get 10% off your first monthly box subscription, that's right, 10% off your first monthly box subscription, courtesy of the two-man power trip of wrestling and courtesy of Meowbox and meowbox.com, now prime time, I'm going to hand it over to you, tell them a little bit more about Meowbox and get on over to the two-man power trip of wrestling and sit back and enjoy a little Jerry Jarrett.
0: Oh, yeah, baby. Meow Box. Meow Box has a service called One Box Cam. where every Meow Box purchased, you will donate a can of food to a shelter cat, and that will be donated on your behalf. Also, all edible items will be made in the USA or Canada so you know where items are coming from. Now, my picky Cat Lucy does not... You know, uh, like the edible items so much because she has such such a picky diet. So what we do is we trade off the edible items for toys and surprises, which she absolutely loves. And that is great of Meowbox that they're able to do that for us. And that is Meowbox.com, promo code Powertrip10, all capital letters, for 10% off your first subscription. Again, that's Meowbox.com, promo code Powertrip10 for 10% off. Now to some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at RasslinPAL and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. And also, check out the feed for prior episodes with the Blueprint, Matt Morgan, good old JR Jim Ross, Harley Race, Delete. Great Dusty Rhodes, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, WB's Kane, WB's Dean Ambrose, and so, so many more. So check out the feed there. Also check out the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And you can also check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. So put it into the old Google machine there and type in the I-95 Sports Network and look for the two-man power trip of wrestling. And don't forget, you can book Kevin Furtig, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, at bookings at wrestling.com That is, please email bookings at wrestlingcom if you would like to book the new face of fear. Kevin Fertig, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai. Now, without any further ado, I send it off to one of our greatest episodes that we've done I mean Jerry Jarrett what a legend he gave us an ample amount of time too which was just fantastic and one of the biggest legends in the history of Memphis wrestling one of the most underrated legends in the history of the business I send along to quite an honor quite a pleasure Mr. Jerry Jarrett please enjoy On the two-man power trip of wrestling, we have Memphis Wrestling Legend. He's a wrestler. He's a promoter. He's an author. He's a businessman. He was even once a referee and a ticket taker. He is the founder of TNA Wrestling. He is Mr. Jerry Jarrett. Jerry Jarrett, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, glad to be here. With that introduction,
1: I'm not sure I can qualify. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what's so interesting about you and your family, and, I mean, obviously you guys have been in, in the wrestling business for a very, very long time, but one thing I was so interested in was how did you actually get started in the wrestling business? Because, I mean, your mother was even a part of the business.
1: Yes, I was, what you might say, born in the business. My mother took a job for the local promoter in Nashville, Nick Gullis, Roy Welch. And I was three years old, and when she took the job, and would literally sit at her feet while she sold tickets to the front So I started out then when I got eight or nine years old. They let me start selling the programs. About twelve, when I started. I got a promotion I was the to. Take up tickets on the front door, and then I started promoting spot shows at about fifteen, and then got into
0: the business. It's interesting. I guess you went from promoter to wrestler, then back again to a promoter. But how did you get into the actual wrestling like uh, involvement of the business? Where did you train, and you know, when did you start? Really, I know um, it was a little bit after you, you started promoting, but when did you actually start the thick of things with your training?
1: Yeah, well, I promoted basically the, while I was in high school. Every summer from the top, I was 15, 16, 17. And then I, then I got away from the wrestling while I was in college. And then I decided I didn't like corporate world after I was working, and uh, went up and asked the promoter for a part-time job until I found out what I wanted to do, and I never left the part-time job. One day, the referee was, uh, was involved in an auto accident, so they were desperate, and had me go out and buy a referee shirt and send me to a town to referee the match. Then, uh, from riding to the town, they would get me a ride with different wrestlers. Uh, Japanese wrestler, Tojo Yamamoto, one day suggested, why don't you let me train you? Here? Because, you know, we would talk about sports and I just loved sports, played all four, major sports in basketball. Got a scholarship to Washington State Teachers College for basketball. So, he started training me and and I went to refereeing to wrestling. And then I figured out that plenty was in the promotion. of,
0: uh, back what was it like training under Tojo Yamamoto? Because he's a you know, big-time legend, especially in the Memphis area.
1: Yeah, well, he was, he was tough on me like he was all the rest of it. My mother did not want me to be in the wrestling pit. So she had, she said before, after I, Tojo taught me how to work, and so when I came up, Tojo was trying to get things to book me, my father, who that I then had worked up a ticket seller to their secretary, she intervened and said, "Well, no, until you can defend yourself, I don't want. You, I don't want you in the ring. There will be a jealousy factor because you're kind of in the business in the office. So she lined up a shooter by the name of Sailor Moran, and I didn't find it out until later that her instructions to sailor were discourage him so that he doesn't want to be arrested. And literally for about nine months, they would just take me and beat me up pretty severely. But by that time, Tojo was telling me, now they're going to try to make you not going to be in the business. I know what the deal is. You don't need to really be learning to shoot. And, uh, so I stuck it out. Finally, Salus said, you know, I'm feeling sorry for you. I never thought I'd be that way, but I can't beat you up anymore. So he intervened and went to the office. Hmm. Told him I was a whole lot tougher than I really was.
0: Now, when you actually started wrestling get involved, obviously uh, Memphis was, was a huge... Huge area you know, of, uh, of great wrestling, and obviously you have played a huge part in the history of Memphis wrestling. But what was it like wrestling in the Memphis area, and what were the fans like? Oh well, in Memphis and really all over, local Evansville,
1: the whole southeast here. But later I found out that I promoted Jim Barnett, Atlanta, and had an interest in Florida. The whole southeast had very, very passionate pains. And, uh, you know, it was exciting. When I first went to Memphis, it, uh, it wasn't growing very well. And we'd go down and I was on a preliminary match and it'd make it $15 or $25. It was a big paint But... Uh, You know, I had some real good luck when my break came, and and, uh, the town picked up. We went to throwing the sellout
2: drafts. Now,
0: in your wrestling career, I'm not sure what the date was, but I know you had a scaffold match probably the first of its kind you remember that scaffold match and what year and and who else was involved in like that crazy crazy scaffold match
1: I don't remember the the exact time but when I would get in from the stands I was so hyped up I would turn on the TV and make out kids and and watch television for 3 or 4 o'clock and I saw a movie that was a real beat movie. I'd going see Really poorly done, bad actors. But in this movie, the one part that had me set up for laying down and intently watching was two like gladiators or warriors and Roman Towns good guy and the bad guy were in a fight and they fought out on a tree and had fallen across a big gorge. Of course logic tells you there wasn't any tree tall enough for this gorge. But you know, in Hollywood you could take some uh, liberties. So anyway I was watching it and that was I thought, boy, that is exciting. I think people would love to see wrestlers fight over that gorge. Well, you can't have a gorge in the ring. So I did the best I could, and I set up a scaffolding on each side of the ring and put a walkboard across it. And I was finally able to talk to a wrestler named Don Green in the wrestling against me. that was the scat match.
0: First one took place in the second. Quite a crazy match and quite a crazy idea. And it's funny how you know how how it all came about. That's kind of cool. And obviously in your career, you had a lot of great moments in Memphis, but your name kinda of goes hand in hand and very synonymous with another Memphis wrestling legend, and that is Jerry the King Lola, the king of Memphis, Tennessee. How did that relationship start out? How did you and and, uh, Mr. Lawler get together?
1: Jackie Fargo, who was uh, a big star at that time, but it was me and JoJo and Fargo for the box office attractions. And uh, Jackie said, I've got a guy that's a heck of an artist. Oh. He's just a kid, but do you mind letting him bring his artwork on? He draws pictures of me and other wrestlers and let Lance look at him, you know, and give him a little exposure. So I said, sure. So we had Jerry come down to the TV station and Lance showed his artwork. Then the next time Jackson came to me, he said, Lawler has been wrestling for these outlaw groups, little towns over in Arkansas. And I, I went to one of them, and I think could be a good talent. Cause you let press on the TV, Carpenter, Job in, whatever you want to call it. I said, okay. So we brought in Memphis T V and she was nervous and scared and she shouldn't go nine on hundred miles an hour and and then with print and every everything that happened. It was a nervous brain. So after the match I told him, Get the hell out of here and don't ever come back <laughs> But Donald, he did everything. He did everything you can do wrong. Ringing in the ring when he's getting his brain beat out, chewing, chewing gum. So I ran him off. Then Bargo appealed two or three weeks later, and Jerry came back. And I guess his nerves settled down, but took great bumps had a natural feel for the business. And so I started booking him as enhancement talent, you know. And then I saw the potential in him and put him with a veteran, Jim White, and a manager, Sam Bass. And that's how he broke into the wrestling as a, as a box office stretch. Right? And then, of course, he turned out to be the best wrestler I ever fought. He could talk. He could take great interviews. He had great tagging in the ring. And he took crazy, exciting bumps to made people stand up.
2: Then, as
1: went on. I
0: made him my partner, and I kept giving him a little more and a little more until we ended up 6-6 partners. And, obviously, like you mentioned, Jerry's maybe the great, greatest wrestler or one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but to really, really what put him on the map was a feud that you booked, obviously, was uh, him versus Jackie Fargo. Do you think that feud really, really got him over and, you know, made him cement his, uh, his, his spot as one of the top guys in Memphis?
1: Yeah, because, see, Jackie kind of discovered. So Jackie told me, so I'd like to pass the torch on to Lowell. And, yes, they had a break broker. And that really established him as the superstar. sentence. Jerry got. Uh, Nashville in the plane with the program with the comedian Andy Cohen. But Lawler is the one, I mean, Chuck Margo is the one that commanded Gruden to be the king of Memphis.
0: And he would become, you know, the legendary king of Memphis, but There was another king, if you will, that you know had a uh, residence uh, in the Memphis area, and that was Elvis Presley. Is that true that he used to actually go to the to the wrestling show? But you know they you know they hide him kind of off to the side. Is that true that Elvis was actually there? Oh, yeah.
1: When I first started, we did one at the Mid South Coliseum. I moved there. We were in Elvis Florida, downtown Memphis, and Elvis was a huge, huge fan. And uh, one of his staff was a guy named Red. He came to me and said, help us loves to watch y'all wrestle if you'd like to come live matches. So Dallas Auditorium was one of those arenas that had the big arena and then the stage. And the other side of the stage was like a theater stage or order so we were able to black out that side and let Elvis sit over there and look through the stage and see the rain and voice catches. He came
0: three or four times. Wow, it's great. The king watching the king. That's unbelievable. Obviously, Elvis is one of the biggest stars of all time. And it's awesome that he's uh, sitting in watching some wrestling. That's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Now, with the well, CW... I'm sorry. Oh, am sorry. I cut you off. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, Lawler named himself the King. One day, he and I were in a conversation, and, you know, they were called up the King. Uh, a news thing was talking about the King, and Jerry said Hell, I don't know why they call him the king. I've sold out the pit call South a hundred times more than he has. So I'm the real king. And I said, that's a good idea. you ought got to tell Lance Saturday. <laughs> i was a real king of Memphis, so he did.
0: And,
1: uh,
0: yeah, that's awesome. Um With you and Lawler, obviously, the the CWA in Memphis became huge. And if you were anybody in the business, you went through Memphis. I mean, Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, I believe even Lucez made an appearance. I mean, Jimmy Valiant, The Fabulous, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, Jimmy Hart, Cornette, Kamala, Paul Heyman uh, spent some time there. I mean, anybody who was everybody went down there. But one guy that really, really sticks out to me, because it's funny because obviously he's an actor and a comedian, was Andy Kaufman. And what was it like booking Andy Kaufman and his feud with Jerry the King Walter?
1: Well, I was say uh I was handy as one as Pope. He I talked to him and he uh he'd burn Byrne and he'd call New York office fence and uh he just said I am I would like to be a wrestler. And I said, I want you on Texas. You're about to wrestle. hurt. don't even look like big enough to keep from getting hurt. He said, Well, in my nightclub act, I wrestle women. I'm the intergender champion of the world. And I said, ain't you crazy. He said, No. He said, I don't really think I can beat you And I said, well, we got some women down here in Memphis you can't beat. And he said, I'll put up $5,000 of all the money that I can beat any woman alive. Well, that was too good to pass up, so I said, come on in. And uh, so he had two or three matches, and, you know, he was really just a natural. He made great interviews. Then one night, there was a woman that was about to his $5,000. So Jerry and I were back, and I said, Jerry, run to the ring and stop that match before that woman beats you. And Andy has to give him 5000 So he did, and then Andy just played it by ear. I'm going to sue you. You're interfering with that. You know, and then we
0: the program with Cameron Lawler, that got a lot of national attention. The feud is just unbelievable. The promos back and forth and the angles and, and uh, the pile driver and the broken neck and obviously David Letterman and, and everything else in between. But another feud that really, really sticks out, and, and it was kind of faulty of you guys to, to go with it, was uh, – when Randy Savage and the Popos kind of invaded from the ICW and they feuded with uh, mostly Jerry the King Lawler, but, you know, they kind of ran rampant all over Memphis. What was it like having Lawler feud with Savage and kind of have Savage be like uh, almost like an unpredictable wild card? is
1: best friend it was one of the great losses when he died in my life. And I'll tell you why. Randy and his family decided they wanted to be in the promotion business. So they picked and touch as the place to go. Well, they got on TV and they spent all of their time talking Lawler and Dundee in my promotion. And of course, to the wrestling fan... They thought that was just part of the act, and and most people were, you know, the heels always knock the big face, and vice versa. So finally, after they lost all their money, Randy called me, and he said, Jerry, you've been a real gentleman in this wrestling war, and I want you to know that it was not personal; it was all a business, and I really respect you. We're folding up our tent, going home. So I said, "Brandy, I appreciate." You. So I said, "Why don't we make some money out of it?" And he said, "You'd work with me after all the stuff I've said and done." I said, "Sure," because he broke under his jaw. Crazy stuff. So I said, "Look, why don't we not tell anybody except you and I know it? You don't tell the rest of your company, and I don't tell any of I my men. You just show up at Memphis TV with a big banner saying, here, our whole promotion's cowards. You can whip everybody in.' Here. And so." They did, and after they were there and I saw the reaction, I told Lawler, I whispered his ear and said, it's all a big work, Jerry. Go out and challenge him. So Jerry went out and said, you're not going to come into my backyard, you, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then we booked it and drew sellouts for several months, every then uh, Randy is the only person that came to me. You know, all of Vince recruited all of our good talent, but Randy came to me and said, "Jerry, Vince has called. I will work out as long as you want me to here before I go, because if you've been straight with me. I'll be straight." For all the rest of them just disappeared, but not Randy Savage. And I've just always had the greatest respect for him. And it's been. Lenny's a great guy. His daddy was a great guy. I never knew his mother, but I'm sure she was a great
0: lady. Yeah, definitely. It was a shame we lost him too soon. And... Obviously, that feud with him and uh, Jerry Law, I mean, it's one of those feuds you go back and you watch and you think it's real, first of all, and then secondly, you watch the matches and just unbelievable, uh, you know, the amount of heat that they get and just the, the physicality in the matches were great. Just, you really, really thought that Macho Man was a loose cannon, and that he was really nuts. Oh, yeah. Well, I
1: had, a, you know, I had the pleasure of, of, of handling Randy's matches when he was down here in Memphis working for us. And then he was in New York when I went up to help Vince during that steroid problem, and I got to handle Randy's match WrestleMania 10, which was at Madison Square Garden. So mine and Randy's life were really intertwined.
0: It's funny. I was there that night as well. Great night. Great, uh, great WrestleMania. Uh, awesome. But you, like you mentioned, with um, you being brought up to the WWF in nineteen ninety three, obviously with Vince McMahon uh, on trial for the steroids, how did that actually all come about?
1: Oh, Vince became my uh, Sunday telephone buddy. He would call me every Sunday and. We would talk for literally sometimes two hours. And uh, he knew that I was very close to his father. So it was a bad time. All the uh, bad publicity about pet Patterson was out. Right on the heels of that came the government charging him with steroid distribution. And so he would call, and I think, I mean, you know, Vince doesn't do anything by accident. He's a friendly man. But because I was so close to his dad, he finally told me one day, he said, I'm really worried if I have to go to jail. I've got great people, but nobody knows how to call the pieces. In the
0: rest
1: of the business, yep. Is there any way I can talk to you into coming up here? Of course, I said no. And you know, four or five
0: Sundays later, I said yes. Wow. So basically, you would have been in charge of the like the whole company. You would have been the boss. You would have been the Vince McMahon.
1: Yes, when I first went up there, that was Vince's intent. And, uh, thank the Lord, he, uh... Now, I don't mean this. I hope you don't take offense to it, but if you've ever lived in Tennessee and then you go to the Northeast, it's not fun. So, (laughs) So, when he was, uh, you know, I used black choked vents. fence I said Vince, don't ever take a vacation to the southeast. Because you'll you'll move Titan Towers and as to Nashville, Tennessee. Hmm. And but at any rate I've two or three days after he was gone to pick it, and uh because, you know, if you've grown up in the South, Vince had a house that probably cost him separate or million dollars there in Greenwich at the Polo Grounds. And I told him, I said, I can put your house in my ballroom, Vince. You just think you're living a good life up here. But anyway, we, we used to have a lot of fun joking.
0: What was your relationship like after you know? Obviously, he, he the trial you know ended the way it did, and he ended, didn't end up going to jail. What was your relationship like after that? Did he still call you every Sunday? Were you guys still in communication? Were you still talking? Not not
1: as much, of course, but um, I helped him a good bit. You know, first thing that happened. Eric Bischoff came when he heard I'd come back home to New York and offer a job helping help him run Atlanta with Turner. And I knew Ted personally from years ago when I was in Atlanta with Jim Barnett. But I had burned out leaving home. I wanted to stay right there in his- but um, finally, Eric offered me a job as a consultant, said I would never have to come to that and just to So I told him, you know, I feel obligated to Ben. Ben's was still paying me. Ben's paid me a year after I came home, because I think he thought I'd come back up there. But he consultant at home. And I said, I certainly don't want to go work with them because it'll offend you. He said, want to take their money. The sooner they go broke, the better off I'll be. And I said, Well, that's not speaking very highly of me. He said, They won't listen to you anyway. I know so anyway I accepted the job and so for about a year I was getting a check in the mailbox from WWE and one from Ted
0: Turner
1: huh. and uh, but after my, about a year with and I just I got tired of it but and Sometimes Lynn would call and I would work as liaison for some of the wrestlers. Like we when you got the Sanders, I called Scott. We got Logan, I arranged for them to meet in the hotel. When Logan came back for him. stuff like that. But uh, you know, I I got away from wrestling, and I haven't talked to Vince in a while. Now, I'm oh wait, a- yes I did. Oh. I I I called him when I got the, the Russian kid. Vladimir uh, well, oh, Kozlov. Yeah. Anyway, a friend of mine, Lenny Kopkin, up there in Brighton Beach, asked me about getting into business,
0: and I called Vince and asked him if he'd give with the contract. He said, "Sure." But now, what was the what was the deal with Vladimir Koslov? Was who?
1: With, with
0: the plug cos, the, Russian, the up with up, you're bringing him in, yeah.
1: Yeah, I just, I what I wanted to do, and I told Vince, I said, you know, the kid needs some training. And I said, you don't have anybody up here that has a clue how to break a wrestler Let me keep him, let him move to Nashville, New York, and let me work with him for a while. And he said, no, no, we'll break him in.
0: Of course, they didn't, and then they missed him, and he didn't last long. Well. No, no, he didn't, he should have been lasted longer. I actually, uh, I actually liked that Vladimir Kozlov a lot, but, you know, they they didn't use him correctly, and, they didn't, you know, they didn't really put him in, in the yeah. best situation. But did you get heat with TNA? Because obviously, you know, you were with TNA right before that, and then, you know, I believe it's around 2005-ish. And, you know, you're bringing the guys to Vince and WWF. Do you have any heat with the, uh, you know, with Jeff and Dixie and TNA at that point? Yeah, yeah. I
1: called Jeff because I wasn't real active in TNA at that time. I just, I thought they were going the wrong direction and I didn't want to fight with Jeff and Dixie. And uh, so I was staying at home. So I called Jeff and I said, uh, Talk to Dixie and see if they'll book this kid. I said, I was, I started Hogan out, and this guy's got more natural talent than Hogan did, and I think he can be that big a star. So Jeff said, Yeah, I'll talk to her and see. So Dixie declined. And so in my phone conversation with Jeff, I said, Well, I I don't want to disappoint my friends. First of all, they're all busy bears, and I may want to get back in the wrestling business someday. So, do you care if I call Vince and Jeff laugh? Because Jeff and Vince won't get along at all. So, he... Jeff laughed and said, yeah, go ahead and call him. Because Jeff is thinking there's linkage between Vince not liking him and not liking me. You know, he just didn't know. So when I called Vince, Vince said, sure. And then after they took him and word got out that I sent him. his name was only previous with his real and, you know, then uh, Bob Carter and Dixie and
0: Jeff all got bent out of joint, and I was able to safely make my escape from hmm. What was the heat be- between Jeff and Vince? I mean, you said they don't get along. Was it all because of the um, they say an incident where supposedly um, – he was holding him up for money, but he wasn't really holding him up. He was just basically getting what was due to him. Was that the heat between them? Vince thought one way and Jeff thought the other? Yeah, I've been asked about that a lot, and that's
1: one of the areas. Jeff's my son, and that's one of the areas that I just declined to for my
0: it was, Other we was than
1: that, what?
0: I oh, uh, we we spoke to Jeff about I it. Know. He was basically saying it was a little bit of a you know a miscommunication uh, on like everyone's part, where he was basically just trying to get the uh, the money that was owed to him, and uh, I guess Vince took it a, a different way.
1: Like I said,
2: that's
1: that's
0: one of the things that I say no problem. With yeah, it's, and like,
1: I think you can that. understand that.
0: Now, as we're, we are uh, talking about TNA, how did you and Jeff actually start T- NWA TNA? I mean, it was a 2002, WCW was dead, ECW was dead, WWF was the only game in town They would soon become the WWE. How did you and Jeff start NWA TNA?
1: Uh, Jeff had burned his bridges with Vince, and, you know, the famous Vince, the heat was so intense that Vince fired him on national television. I don't know if you saw that or But yeah. he said, J E double J A double R E double G U R fired. only it was real. <laughs> but anyway, Jeff, there really wasn't any options. So at the time I had a big construction company going and I tried to get Jeff to just walk away from wrestling and join us in the construction business. And as prim, I had Jeff get his general contract license, But Jeff was held in on continuing wrestling. So he kept Coming to see me, and finally I relented.
0: We started the come. Now, when you originally started, obviously with a different concept, you guys were going with just pay, uh, just pay-per-view programming in the beginning, and it was, it was just new content every Wednesday night, and you guys would, you know, have the pay-per-view. But did you foresee, um, you know, you guys? starting at pay per view and then going to T V or how did you how did you wanna uh, you know, where did you see the company ending up? Yeah. Well checked
1: the one that you know, I think Bob Ryder Bob Ryder was a great influence on me. They're the ones that had the concept of going straight to pay per view at a very cheap price. And I didn't know. I mean, you know, I said, well, we can try. But our hope was that we would eventually end up on network TV. And through a very long route, yeah, they did. Started on Fox and and moved to spite. And it was one of those situations where you know, you love your children and you'll do a lot of things sometimes that don't make sense for your children. And my heart was not in wrestling since 99 when uh sold my interest in Memphis alone. Because, you know, I had moved on. And you know, when when you enjoy something you can be successful in it. When you quit enjoying it, you don't need to do it. And my partner that's in the car with me right now, we're coming back from an interview. We're in the healthcare business. And, and that is doing incredibly well, and we all love it, and I have the same passion for that as I used to have in 1970 for wrestling. Hmm. But um, I, I never I never had the eye of the for the TNA or any wrestling. Recently, but I don't really you know, know when it was. But it culminated
0: in Right. Now, recently you and Jeff have uh, reconciled. He, yeah, he uh, got the uh, TNA Hall of Fame and, and everything else. But was the heat between you guys because you didn't really have interest in TNA and that was his passion? Was Was there... Was that the uh, the heat between you guys? I think
1: that yes. The the problem was the wrestling business, and, and Jeff didn't want me to get out of the business, and he really didn't want me in. You know, when a son grows up in the shadow of their father, they want to break out of that shadow but then on the one hand. On the other hand, they really don't want that big shadow to go away. So that was the struggle that we had. And and then A kind of magnified it to the point that we went several years and didn't talk to each other. And then, uh, you know, Jeff sent me an email and, we exchanged emails for a few weeks and then we had a meeting. And, you know, now,
0: back to a father plan, son relationship. Very good. Very, very good to hear. With TNA, obviously with Jeff, was it a hard decision trying to find somebody? That's obviously, TNA sold a portion of the company when you were there to Panda Energy and Dixie Carter and Bob Carter. But was it hard to find a suitor? And, and did you think that uh, the Carters were like the right, um, the right financial backers for TNA wrestling at that time? Um. Well,
1: it was hard, and yet it wasn't there. You know, the wrestling business is very limitless, and there is a tremendous amount of will in this country. And so, you know, Dixie is the one that wanted to well, be in the wrestling business. And when Jeff and I flew out to Dallas and met with her mother and father and some of the board members of Panda Energy, uh, Dixie was a great influence in having a father interest in the company. And uh, you know, it was a blessing and a curse. And I think that it would have been a good thing had been the industry have stayed at a long length investor, Because Dixie did really didn't have the background to step in and Run the business, so it it all became a situation that I wanted to escape from. And my I I was divorced from Jeff's mother, and so every time I would talk to him about me getting up, it was kind of, uh, "Are you going to abandon me again?" So, it was, I was real unhappy for a long time, and, uh, you know, I think that was a big part of why Jeff and I went through our period of separation, But everything's
0: good now. Yes, it's very, very good to hear, and, uh, very good that Jeff is finally uh, honored by uh, Dixie and um, TNA as he's finally uh, a member of the TNA Hall of Fame, as he should always be. Now, if I could rewind just a little bit back, we were talking about uh, yourself and your relationship with Vince McMahon, but I was very curious about when you and uh, Jerry Lawler started the USWA, obviously you had the CWA and then you guys started the USWA together, but what was the relationship with Vince McMahon and the WWF? Because seemed like they were using a lot of your talent and you guys were using a lot of WWF talent, you even had a feud for a little bit, the USWA versus the WWF.
1: Well, that was a situation where Oliver would go on TV, and I would ask him not to. Do. He had such angst in him about Ben's taking all the talent. But, you see, you have to go way back in this. I had an ESPN contract. And the Paul's I was from the old National Wrestling Alliance and, and the old school. When Jim Barnett and Jim Crockett Sr. came to me and said, you're going to kill wrestling when ESPN sees everything you're doing in Dallas and Memphis, then the whole world says. And so I said, "Okay, I'll pull up my horses." So when Vince made his move, I always knew that it was inevitable because of the advent of cable TV. So I wasn't as angry at Ben's as Jerry was. because, you know, it's kind of like you're free hardware in Hendersonville and you get and float because they're putting all the little hardware schools them. There's some things in life that are inevitable. They're just going to take place. And cable TV was going to kill regional wrestling. Couldn't help not do it. Somebody is going to have a national television show. And and Fent saw this and did it. Because he went from the old school that his father was from.
0: What was the? Does that make um, any sense? Yep, absolutely, definitely. What was the relationship with USWA and WWF, though, as far as, was there like a talent exchange that you guys had with uh, them? yeah. It, again, Vince called and said, uh, you guys are
1: the last one standing. Uh I watch your tapes, you know what you're doing, why don't, why don't we compensate you a little bit and you let us send you some talent and uh, you train them down there. I said, okay. Because he really wasn't, he wasn't killing us it it hurt us, but... You know, I wasn't making a million dollars a year or 700000 like Well, if you can't spend 700000 so I was, you know, I was was never angry at WWE for their expansion. And we also, in a way, it helped us because every time he took a ballot it would give some of my underneath new talent a chance to move up to main event. And uh, so, and the crowds would sometimes pick up because of the new talent. Of course, most ultimately it ran out because we ran out of new talent, or good talent, kind of like American Idol's so hot, they they're not telling
0: what it is five or was years ago. so they're not getting the ratings that they did. Hmm. Good point. And with the USWA versus WF feud, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but they should go back and watch a lot of, uh, you know, when you guys had the interpromotional feud because that's the first time we got a glimpse at the heel character of Mr. McMahon. Do you remember him basically playing the heel on uh, USWA TV?
1: Oh, yeah. See, I was in New York promoting when that happened. And we were sitting in his dining room table uh Chris Pritchard, Matt Madison, being bit, And we were talking about the need for a new and kind of off the cuff in a half joking way and half very serious way I said hell bitch you are in the ring you're the best natural heel I've ever known (laughs) looked at me and he said are you kidding or I said yeah about 50-50 I said you are a natural heel if you're the Decided to wrestle the the little vote. I would have had you as my superstar in the middle. So we laughed it off, you know. Then he came to me. One day we were going to one of the secondary shows over the studio. And he said, uh, you know, I've always had a secret desire to get in the ring. And I said, well, let me tell you what we've got I'll take you to Memphis. We'll start out here making interviews, I'll take you to Memphis and you can get some experience under your belt, and I guarantee you'll you'll be the best talent WWE's ever had. And that's how that all going to start.
0: Did he ever do any... uh actual training with you at all down there, or no? Any
1: what?
0: Uh, Did he do any actual, you know, like, wrestling training with you at all down there?
1: Well,
0: yeah, he had I mean, yes, he had some matches. I'm I'm sorry, he he actually actually did some wrestling? Yeah, I, I can't
1: remember exactly because he, you know, I'm at my plate full in New York and then I'm trying to halfway over to see Memphis. I was pretty, pretty busy there for a month. And I think we did a deal with him in law one or two, maybe three weeks. But he was he got tremendous heat
0: for interviews before he ever showed up. Yes, I remember those interviews well. Very very funny stuff, very good good heel stuff. But if I could I I actually um forgot or skipped over this earlier, but uh in Memphis, obviously, there was a huge feud, the nineteen eighty seven feud of the year, and I was just wondering your take on it because We've had Austin Idol on the show a couple times, and uh, he does nothing but uh, have good things to say about you and good things to say about Jerry King Lawler. But do you remember the feud between Austin Idol and Jerry Lawler that was basically one of the greatest feuds in the history of Memphis? Yes. Uh, in a very general way, yes, I remember.
1: Um, specifics, no, after... You know, what was it, 40 years? A lot of it all works together. It's like mm. right now, you're, when you mention USWA, the reason USWA came into being was carrying and Kevin Von Eric called me and said, we're broke and filed for bankruptcy. And I hate to see my daddy's territory close up, Would you be interested in coming out. And I did, and so potential, but I had to have a new banner. I didn't want to be WCCW, which is what they were, World Planets.
0: What was the relationship like between Memphis and World Class? Was it hard to, uh, get, like you were just talking about it, but was it hard to uh, come up with ideas? Obviously, Jerry had a great match with uh, Carrie Von Erich that I remember quite fondly. But was it hard to uh, get together with, uh, you know, obviously going of business, but, you know, creatively, was it hard to, to deal with them? Dallas?
1: With, with, yeah. Dallas? I don't
0: I had controlling interest. Oh, you had controlling interest. Okay, gotcha. Yes. Okay. I
1: had. Also, you.
0: Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say. Um, also, you had, um, you know, the Von Erichs uh, coming to Memphis and, and back and forth a lot. But was that was that profitable for yes. you guys? To, to you know, for you to do that.
1: Was
0: it what? Oh, uh, profitable. Was that, like, a, a good business decision by you guys?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We and I had a tour bus. We did the Dallas on Friday night and left the TV Saturday morning. All of us. That's that's where we broke Steve Austin. Chris Adams was the trainer at my wrestling school, and he was a uh, one of the students. And Chris was very fond of him. Thought he was a good talent. So we stuck him. We put him on the bus and took him to Memphis, and he was very good every night. Well, Dallas didn't run very often. I mean, Dallas itself... Spiritual. Did you foresee?
0: What? Did you foresee Austin? You know, at that point, obviously, you know, you saw something in him. He he was talented, and and obviously he became, you know, the biggest star, one of the biggest stars of all time. But did you foresee him at that point being, you know, a huge star like he became?
1: No, I didn't. Chris Adams did. No, I just, you know, he was just one of the boys. But, of course, that's when he first got in. I mean, you know, when somebody's having first match for you and the second or third, you know, you don't always see, but they're going to be stars. Um uh, Ultimate Warrior turned out to be a superstar and Sting turned out to be a superstar. But then when they when the Out them into the business and they were the
0: play for, they wasn't the same people as Ultimate Warrior and Sting. With Warrior and Sting, did you see like potential in them when you got them or did you just think they like, man, I could mold these two guys into being something great?
1: No, so, when they showed up at my house in Innocentville, I saw two good-looking bodies that had unbelievable passion to break into this business. And so that made it worth my time to break them in. Did I think they would ever rise to the level they did? No. But the truth, I didn't think about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Sting gives you a, a ton, a ton of credit, basically says, you know, you, you're basically the guy that gave him his first break, Started basically started him out really for real in the wrestling business. And, you know, he gives you a lot of credit. And um, I guess, you know, you must have saw something, you know, in him, you know, obviously the passion, but you must have saw something in him to, you know, give him that chance. Well, sure. I, I, what
1: I'm saying is I saw the thing there my time and energy to break into the business. But did I foresee that Sting would become the greatest wrestler WCW ever had? No. I did I just thought he would I, I thought he would make it the business. Now this is after I had told them both look, you guys are never going to be main event in Memphis because you broke in here. My advice to both of you is to go back home to California and get a good job. <laughs> so, you know, when, you, when you're when asking these questions, yes, I saw enough potential to break them in. Did I think they were going to become big box office stu- superstars know that after they went to two or three other territories and each stop along the way, they improved their character and their ability. Sure. But, you know, it's hard to look into a glass ball and see any more than these guys there
0: very, very true. And there's no doubt about that. And it's funny because you obviously know what you're doing because maybe you don't see them become a huge start, but, you know, you knew that staying in Warrior were going to be something in the business, Austin, and then, of course, even look back to your old, you know, your business partner in uh, Jerry the King Lawler who, you know, you gave your break to. So, obviously, you know, you know what you're doing and you you see something in these guys and, obviously, um You know, you you can maximize a lot of their potential.
1: Well, yeah, like when Hogan came to me, Hogan wasn't then and he isn't now, or any stuff in between And right after. He's very limited as far as just wrestling. But what I saw in him was the same charisma that made him one of the top box offices of all time. And so, you know, some people, some of the talent exude charisma before they can cross him. Um, Jerry Long did. Jimmy Hart did. Jim Cornette did. Mark Logan did. Coco, beware of the bird face, certainly Randy Savage. But some, it takes a while for them to develop and for it to come out. And if you will think about the two, Ultimate Warrior made the best interview I ever heard him make after he was through wrestling when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. But when he was also a warrior, he he wasn't very good on the mic. See what I'm saying?
0: Yep. Very, very true. And one uh, point I I forgot to make, um, as we were talking about, obviously USWA and, and world class, was the influence of the AWA, did they come to you and, and you know, want to team up? Was that another uh, instance where, you know, they were they were losing money and, and they needed somebody to pick them up too? Yes. And
1: what happened, I had sent a kid named Mike Shields up to help burn because we were doing great business with them with the wrestling videos. I'd seen the success on MTV, and I said, you know, I can do that in the rest. So Mike was a good production man, television. So I will send you up there, and we well, had Mike break in his placement down here. So anyway, Mike called me one day and said, I think we're going to close this. Uh, you ought to come up here and look at it. It's a lot of money to keep in. So I had several conversations with Barry, and he said, yeah, come on up. So when I did it, he asked for Four million dollars for his company. Well, it wasn't worth that. It wasn't worth the business. But... The synergy between Dallas, Tennessee Territory, and there, I thought, would help all the So, we made a deal. But then, right the day before we were supposed to go to his lawyer's office to sign the deal, he said... uh, I talked last night, and I can't leave Greg out for cold. And I said, well, then give him the damn money, man. And he said, no, I can't do this deal. He wants to be arrested, but I can't do this deal if you don't make him for and keep him as a top talent. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Goodbye. I can't pay. Came back to
0: Nashville. I
1: don't know if Burns folded up a year or two after that. Yeah, yeah, he definitely
0: did. Maybe that year. I don't. Yeah, it's funny. The most memorable part of that whole thing was pretty much Jerry Lawler beating uh, Kurt Hennig. You know, for the for the strap for the AWA title, that was like the, the big. The big memory, if you will, of uh, you know that whole conglomeration, that whole uh, that whole little feud there.
1: Yeah, Kurt was just one of
0: the other great people in this. Way. I really loved Kurt. Now, as I start to wind it down here a little bit, I was just curious about your wrestling career in itself. Do You have a favorite match, or maybe matches that you look back upon that you really love. When you were involved with the, you know, wrestling, in the wrestling business? But I
1: was personally in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably in Memphis, I did a hair match and they, I lost my hair. They shaved. That stands out because everybody, when I got in the dressing room, said, Boy, you did a hell of a job. It looked like you were really crying, and I said, "Well, I really was. I was just so overcome with emotion that, you know, ten thousand people were screaming, and you know that's that's a real kick. The greatest match, and the most emotional. Jack Briscoe was Eddie Graham's and he was my best friend in the promotion in Jack Briscoe was his man and Jerry Lawler was mine. and Lawler and Briscoe had a match in Memphis that still to me is the greatest match I've ever seen since the business and Eddie Graham and I both stood at the back of the Mid-South Coliseum and got emotional and cried watching it to give the Did you have
0: a a favorite opponent in your career that you wrestled?
1: No, not really. My wrestling, personally, in the ring, never captured by passion. I, I I did because I needed to, but uh, okay, got my real passion, my real passion was
0: in the promotion. What was your favorite part in Memphis? Your favorite, you know, promotional angle. Your favorite as a booker. What was your favorite feud to book? Uh, I know there was a. There's so many to name. I mean, we were talking about a bunch of four Lawler Idol, Lawler Funk, Lawler Dundee. Uh, Lawler Valiant, Lawler kaufman I mean, the list goes on and on forever. But do you have a favorite, um, you know, booking moment, if yes. you will, from Memphis? The
1: uh, Tupelo Concession Stand Match. You ever heard of that?
0: No, no. What What is that?
1: A team called the Moondogs. Lawler, they... Absolutely destroyed half of Tupelo Arena of all of the concessions. Most brutal match I've ever seen. And drew money for a solid year after that one match. You can probably, you might be able to get it on YouTube. Or at least clip some. Uh See, I had a program that climaxed with that match, Briscoe Lowe, and it was called Quest for the Title. And that program lasted one solid year. And I brought in everybody the Sheik, Nick the Bruiser, Wilbur Steiner, two or three world champions, uh, Dory Funk, Terry Funk. Andre the Giant, I brought everybody in to Russell Waller, And it was a very simple program. It was his quest for the title. And, you know, every week we'd say, well, the NWA says in order to get that title, match with Frisco, He's got to get some more wins under his belt. So I bring him in to the Iron Sheet. Not the ice sheet, the original sheet. And that was, you know, one of the best things, best programs I ever had and most successful. Uh, another match that stands out is Terry Garvin was uh, the fabulous Garvin, and Terry was gay. And I kind of brought him out of the closet, and I said, Terry, why don't you do the Gorgeous George gimmick, wear robes, roll your hair up, and have it in and just feed the bag of the steer guard. And I said, I think we'll be able to buy it, because half the be people thought Gorgeous George was getting it. And in Atlanta, when Jim Barnett hired me down there, I brought Lou in to fight Terry Garnton. <laughs> and that was one of the great things that I When I went to Atlanta, and was throwing $2,200. You start that match sold out to people three deep around, around the arena downtown
0: arena. that was you know, later on i was able to take the person to the office But it started out there you know i hate to cut this off but i'm back at home oh no problem i just wanted to uh make sure i just got in um Anywhere and everywhere, you know, the fans out there can connect or, or see anything involving Jerry Jarrett, maybe your, your books or, or any other place where the fans can find you?
1: Um, well, no, um, yeah, if any of you come to Chevy, come to Premier Family Healthcare if you have anything wrong with you, and we will
0: fix it. Awesome, and I also would like to uh, say The Best of Times, Jerry Jarrett by Mark James. You can get that um, on uh, Mark uh, James' website, and also check out the story of the development of NWA TNA, a new concept in pay-per-view programming, which is another great book by Mr. Jerry Jarrett.